I'll say it again, robots are cool, um, but they're being applied to a real business problem. They're, they're delivering real value. They're doing real jobs to be done. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. All right, welcome to episode 50. Today, we are talking all about autonomous mobile robots, AMRs, and we're going to be doing that through a conversation with Jeff Christensen, the vice president of product over at Seagrid, one of the leaders in the AMR space. Now, this episode, we're going to take it essentially in two parts. First, we're going to get to know Jeff and his interesting journey into getting into robotics. Then we're going to talk all things robots. We'll talk AMRs. We'll talk reshoring. We'll talk how data is a critical part of this and how robots and humans are working together. Big episode. If you want to dive into any of the resources that come up in today's show, make sure to go over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 50 to access the show notes to this episode. Before we get rolling, I want to say if you are enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving a five-star rating and review over at Apple Podcasts. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. And because so many of you have been leaving these ratings and reviews lately, I do want to make sure I'm giving shout-outs to the folks that are leaving some fantastic ones. So I want to give credit to The Means today, left a five-star review as of Wednesday, And they said, this is the best pod in manufacturing, hands down. Chris does an amazing job of sourcing fantastic guests, creating a fun conversation, while still servicing really interesting content about the manufacturing, logistics, and supply chain space. Highly recommend this pod. It's on my regular rotation. Well, the means, thank you so much for taking the time to write that. Means a lot. Helps put the show on the map. For anyone else, if you are thinking of writing a rating and review, doesn't need to take long, just can be a couple of short sentences and hitting that five star button doesn't take any time at all. So again, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash iTunes. Would love to see you there. And with that, I think it's time to crack a couple beers and talk about AMRs. It's time to meet up with Jeff Christensen. So, well, before we dive in today, Jeff, I got to ask you, you said you're a stout guy first and foremost, correct? Uh, well, at least I'm a dark beer guy. I've got a, I've got okay. a porter today. All right. All right. Well, for the occasion, I was just home in St. Louis and I picked up uh, a music themed velvet underbrown from Heavy Riff Brewing. So I uh, this time of year, I start moving into the IPA as the lighter beer. But for the occasion, I wanted to... Uh, to go off your favorite style. So. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I'm uh, I'm doing a Breckenridge Vanilla Porter mm. here today. Uh, yeah, and I, I, you're absolutely right. Once you get into the summer months, you should be going to lighter beers. But you know, I don't know. I stick to this almost all year round. You know, a 
a good beer that you can drink with a fork is is always a good thing. Yeah, no, I I, I don't necessarily disagree with that because I've got a lot of buddies that are like, I'll do stouts when it's ninety degrees outside like that. They they don't let that stop them. So, yeah. um, but I also, since you're a, a Pennsylvania guy, made sure to use my Yingling glass <laughs> today as well to nice. keep with the theme. So nice local flavor. Well yeah. done. Yeah. Trying, trying to honor Pittsburgh and everything uh, in this, which is, which is where you're based. And before we go any further, I do want to make sure I give you a proper introduction. So our guest today is on the cutting edge of the robotics revolution that we're seeing in the manufacturing world as the VP of product at Seagrid. He's taking robotics and autonomous mobile robots to the next level. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Christensen. It's good to have you here, Jeff. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. So as as with anything, I know we've been chatting about the beers that we have, but uh, we also want to start it in, in happy hour style conversation fashion. So if we were having this beverage over drinks in Pittsburgh today, mm-hmm. where, where would we be doing that? Do you have a favorite local bar brewery? Yeah, you know, there's a uh, there's a place that's local around here. Um, it's called the Sharp Edge, and it's a it's a Belgian. Um, it has a lot of Belgian uh, beers there, and it's got you know I don't know 50, 60, 70 on tap, and and then a menu that goes down to two or three hundred. So you can't go wrong uh, at a place like that. All right. The sharp edge sounds like a spot that I would enjoy. And uh, in the spirit of that, let's say you and I are hanging out at the sharp edge and, and someone comes up and asks a question where it's like, you know, I I keep hearing about autonomous mobile robots. I feel like I keep hearing that they're the, the new answer for material handling. Is that true? And why, how would you answer that if you were kicking it with someone at a bar? All right. Well, first, I would say cheers to the person who's coming up and asking a question about <laughs> robots. So love it. <laughs> uh, and then, second thing is, absolutely, uh, that is the answer. I, I think that one of the things that a lot of people don't maybe think about in their day to day lives is how all of the stuff that they get or consume gets to their door. Like, what's that supply chain even look like? I mean, maybe in the past year with the pandemic, people have thought about it a little bit more than than what they used to. But all of that stuff that's that's moving around in in the world that has to happen somehow. And, um, you know, people don't think about it a lot, but the industry is facing all sorts of pressures, economic pressures, uh, demand pressures, right? They've got to go faster, better, cheaper all at the same time. And and they just can't do it the old ways. And robots happen to be here to, I think, save the day. Well, I would agree with that. I think most people that would listen to that show agree with that. We uh, certainly have a lot of robot evangelists that that tune into Manufacturing Happy Hour. And, and we want to get to that in a second. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit more. Because as I was prepping for this, I was, uh, I was looking up your background. And if I'm not wrong, you got a degree <laughs> in music and economics to just kind of start things off. So I'd love to hear, explain to me how you got into like human computer interaction at Carnegie Mellon and now into robots after all that. Well, you know, uh, it it seems like it's just the most common background, right? Music to economics (laughs) to this. Yeah. So I, um, yeah, I do have a a music degree and I studied economics in in undergrad and I was a, uh, I I I would call myself an academic grazer back in in the day. I tried a little bit of everything. And one of the things that I really gravitated towards was the interdisciplinary fields, the things that touch on a lot of different things and the the connections between them. And that's been kind of a 
a theme throughout my career is translating between, you know, people that have deep knowledge in one domain and somebody has deep knowledge in another domain, but they don't understand each other. And that kind of connective tissue is where really interesting things happen. That's how innovation comes about. So, so yeah, I, I have a degree in music. I went to New York City for a couple of years after undergrad. I worked in a little music studio in my starving artist phase with the the long hair and the terrible looking goatee and, you know, um, you know, sleeping on the couch in the studio to save the subway tokens, all, all of that kind of stuff. And then I, and then I moved to Pittsburgh back quite a while ago. I've, uh, I've been here more than 25 years, which does not make me a native to the Pittsburghers, but, uh, it seems like it's at least reasonably close. So yeah, I, I came back to go to Carnegie Mellon and, and studied human computer interaction, which is all about the, interdisciplinary nature of technology and people and can you design technology to work better with how people understand it as opposed to forcing people to change how they behave to you know accommodate the technology i i strongly believe in the former so that's what got me on this on this track and then i i've done software and hardware companies for for all of that time since then Ooh, well, I'm interested to get into how you can design technology to be more fitting for the people than that are using it rather than trying to do it the other way around. But first, I, I got to go back to your, your music experience. Uh, <laughs> you're not the first music guy we've had on this show before. So I'm curious, what's something that you learned back from, let's say, more your fine arts days, your starving artist days that have served you well as a technology leader? Well, I, I think there's a few things actually. You know, it's interesting that there's there are a lot of musicians in in computer fields and computer science. I sort of think of music theory as not that different than a programming language, right? There's uh, there's structure and abstraction, and you're trying to achieve a goal and and things like that. So there's there's actually a lot of similarities there, which is why I think you get a lot of musicians in in computer science. Um, but it's also working together. Uh, you know, toward a toward a common purpose where you have different specializations. So my um, my instrument of choice was the trumpet. I was I was like an orchestral trumpet player. That was my that was my thing. So I sat in the back of a symphony. That was my that was my happy place. But uh, you know, you can't play a Mahler symphony with with one person and one instrument. You've all got to be working together, and you all have your own specialties. Um, but you know, that, that magic moment when it all really comes together, that's, that's really great. And that's what it's all about. And I, you know, I sort of see that, um, now in, you know, robotics technology and product development, it's, it's not that dissimilar. So uh, going back more to your current career, you've been in some sort of product related role predominantly it seems throughout your entire career um and you mentioned some of the inter interdisciplinary aspects earlier are there other reasons you describe that that's why that was where specializing made sense for you uh well maybe it's because i wasn't technical enough uh to be over on the engineering side i i've uh, it's been quite a while since i've coded um for my uh to put food on my table um but uh i i think what i liked about going in the product direction is, again, it meets up with all of these things, right? There's the people component of it. There's the market component. There's the commercial. There's the technical. You've got to find out where all the pieces are and then put the puzzle together yourself. And I find that a really interesting problem. Um, but it's also really thinking about not what's now, but what's next, right? It's really focused on what is, what's the problem that's not being solved today 
and there's lots of them, which one's really valuable to solve? How could you solve that in a way that is different than how somebody else might do it? And then how can you kind of chart a course toward that future? I find that to be, um, you know, well, a problem that that uh, that keeps on giving, right? It never goes away. The future is never actually here. Um, so there's always something new to solve. Well, I think one of the ways uh, ways that you just described that thinking about what's next might be a perfect segue into more of our AMR portion of the discussion as well. So, Jeff, how are you thinking about what's next in your current role as the VP of Product over at Seagrid? Yeah, so uh, so AMRs. Uh, I know that your your audience probably knows this, but for those who don't, an autonomous mobile robot. Um, so, and we're in material handling, so we're we're using robots to move stuff, right? Pallets and and parts and all of these things in manufacturing environments. All of the stuff that has to get moved around in order to make a a car or a washing machine or or what have you in manufacturing. So all of those things have to get moved. So I see a. Um, you know, a real confluence of, of things that are happening in the space right now, which makes it really, really exciting. But I think where it's all going is even is even more exciting than that. So you've got robots and robots are cool. I mean, let's face it, robots are pretty cool. Um, but robots aren't the whole story, right? This is a this is a system that what we're really focused on is the flow of material in manufacturing, not the not just the physical movement of it. The movement is is, you know, it's a means to an end. It's part of the puzzle, but it's not the whole thing. And you have to look at it as a whole system. What's needed? What's needed where, when, why? How can I optimize that? And so I, I'm seeing that there's a, um, a movement in this space that's going from robots, all of the physical stuff, which is, again, super cool, let's face it, right? And then one step above that, which is kind of the the, the logical layer. I, I I think of it in, in metaphors. I think of the robots as chess pieces. You've got different chess pieces. They all do different kinds of moves. They sort of do different jobs. But I need all of them to play the game. I need a whole bunch of different kinds. And then I have a chess master that's on top of it that's deciding. I now have all of these robots at my beck and call. Which ones should go where? How do I interact with them? How do I understand what it is that they're doing you know, in that human computer interaction sense, how do I know what that robot's doing? Is it doing the right thing? Is it doing something for me? Is it doing something for somebody else? Is it working correctly? Is it not working correctly? Like all of those, those sort of subtle cues that you get with a person, if you were working with a person, those are all easy. But once you're working with a robot, some of those are really hard. And so you have to really put thought into, I'm now working with a robot colleague. So how do I how do I interact right so there's that whole kind of logical operational layer that goes on top of it and then there's a, a learning layer that that's on top of that which is I think really fascinating this is now maybe deep blue sits on top of that in, in the metaphor right that is going to constantly learn and you know pretty soon overtake the human's ability while well, in the metaphor to play chess but here the you know the human's ability to decide you know, which robot should I use? Which material should I use? How can I do this thing? Well, data and software is going to do that way better than, than we can in the future. And so I think all of these pieces coming together in a, in a sort of systemic way is going to be just fundamentally game-changing. A lot of interesting things you said there. One of the first thing that things that jumps out is you talk about you're focused on the flow of material. At the end of the day, you're totally right. Robots are cool, but that's the problem. 
you're trying to solve. Robots are just the tool to address that problem, the same way that software is a tool to address a lot of problems. I like how you talk about the logic and learning layer. In fact, I think that's where where I'm going to go next. I I have a question around that because I think one thing we hear about with robotics all the time is, oh, this is going to replace my job. But I'm interested, and and from what I've seen, that hasn't been the case. If anything, they're just a job adder. But you know that that makes me think of that because you're talking about you know there's logic in there, but there's also learning. Where do people play into this process to enable robots to do more, um, specifically AMRs? I always think of it in terms of like the the triple D, like um, dull, dirty, dangerous jobs. But mm-hmm. I'm I'm saying too much right now. I want you to answer that question. So I'll, I'll hand it back to you. The beer's already speaking on my end, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think you're right. I think that the, um, you know, the dull, dirty, dangerous is, um, you know, that's kind of a sweet spot for, for robotics. I would add um, you know, repetitive, maybe repetitive is the same as dull, but I think that where people fit into this larger system, if you think about the core competencies of a human versus a machine, um, there's sort of a natural competence of where, which one they're good at. Right. And so, uh, are humans good at repetitive tasks? If you're going to drive a forklift in a, a loop for eight hours a day, every day, to deliver these things, right? You're going to get bored, right? Humans are not really good at repetitive tasks like that. In fact, we just generally hate them. And when we get bored in that repetitive task, we improvise to try to keep it interesting, right? That's what keeps our attention at it is like, oh, I'm going to change it up a little bit. I'm going to change it up a little bit. Well, you know what? For a manufacturing process, those variations are, that's the anti-pattern. That's the thing we don't want to do. Right. But that's the only way that I can kind of keep my attention, because if I don't keep my attention, I'm going to make mistakes. And if I'm moving, you know, two, three, five, ten thousand pounds around a manufacturing facility and I'm so bored that I'm making mistakes, bad things are going to happen. Right. So that repetitive uh, task is not a good fit for the person. So, okay, I can I can give that to a robot. But, you know, what are the things that um, that a person is really good at that machines are, you know, that really struggle with. Uh, And this is a, um, it's actually a a well-known term in, in robotics and AI. Uh, It's called Moravec's paradox. Um, And it's named after Hans Moravec, who's a a world famous roboticist. And he happens to be our founder and our chief scientist. And he's a really cool guy, but, um, but he made this observation uh, many, many years ago that Things that are uh, simple for people might be incredibly diff- difficult for machines and vice versa, right? Doing complicated math equations, really hard for people, like machines do that in their proverbial sleep. Like this is absolutely nothing, right? But but perceiving a scene and understanding the nuance of, of body language and that that thing is just a little bit out of place from where it normally is, or that this is like all of those kind of situational nuances People are really, really good at those things. And machines, you know, really struggle. That's a really, really hard robotics and perception problem to understand all of those nuances and and program them in and things like that. So I sort of think about that and I say, well, people are really good at creative problem solving. And by creative problem, I want to put that in there because problem solving, if it's like math equations, no, I'll give that to a computer every day. But if I'm looking at many dimensions of my operation, and I have lessons learned of how this worked 
a year ago or 10 years ago, where I know that there's, you know, kind of a, um, a demand change that's on the horizon or like, I, I know all sorts of contexts around things that I can apply that creativity to. And I can be deciding at a higher level, um, like sort of of altitude or of abstraction of what I ought to be doing differently, where the execution layer of that, boy, I'll, I'm going to give that to a robot, you know, uh, eight times a week uh, for sure, because they're going to be really, really good at that. So I see it as a, it's, it's a very complementary kind of symbiosis, if you will, of, of the people and the machines. And let's let each of them do the thing that they're really strong at doing, um, because you're absolutely right. You know, the hey, robots are taking jobs. That's a that's I hear it a lot. Uh, I'm sure you do, too. Uh, the data does not bear it out. Um, that's not true. It's not how it's actually happening. And, you know, you can go back to about what is it, 1810 or so, where the where the Luddites would go in and break the mechanical looms at night. I, I love that word, by the way. Luddite is one of my favorite words of all time. Continue. I just had yes. to interject. <laughs> right, right, because they thought that the mechanical loom was going to be the destruction of human employment forever. And so they would go in and they would break these looms. And of course, now Luddite means a you know means a technophobe in our in our world today. So um so no I I I'm a firm believer that the technological advancement raises the bar for society. And you know there's job changes and role changes and responsibility changes that go along with that. But um it all in the end is much better for humanity. Um, and there will be more interesting jobs, better jobs, things that aren't you know dull, dirty and dangerous like you said. That might have been one of the best like robots and mach and humans working together monologues we've ever had in the middle of, of this <laughs> podcast. So not only was that excellent, but I can tell you're a music guy because you doubled down on humans taking on the creative problem solving and then, you know, the high volume repetitive tasks, sending those over to robots. So great, great part of the conversation. I'm going to change gears a little bit here. We're, we're going to keep talking on automation and robotics. Uh, when we were talking before this interview, you had talked about high predictability versus high flexibility, where mm. in the past you couldn't really have both. Um, tell me how that's changing with with what you're doing. Yeah, that was <clears throat> that was the fundamental trade off of automation for decades, really, uh, especially in manufacturing. So manufacturing has been working with automation in, in material movement and material handling uh, much longer than other place, other industries like warehousing and things like that. So in manufacturing, you could either have uh, a predictable execution of that move, or I could have flexibility that I could change what my moves are, but I cannot have both, right? And if you go back to, to manufacturing, like I said, quite a ways back, you're going to have, um, you know, the first automated guided vehicles back in the day was like, I, I, um, I dug a little trench in my cement floor on my, uh, on my production line. And I buried a wire there and I put a little current through that wire. And then I would make a machine that would just follow that current in the wire and wherever the wire went, that's where I would go. Right. So it's, it's highly predictable, right? The, the, the reliability of that software code is so, something like, if current go, if not stop, like that, that's about the entire code mm -hmm. base of that, of the smarts of that machine, right? So it's highly predictable. As long as that wire is there, it's going to go exactly along that path. It's like following a train track, right? But what that means is I'm now 
building in rigidity to my operation through my technology choice, which is, you know, at the time you didn't, you didn't have many choices, right? Okay. So that's what I had to do. And that was a trade-off that I had to make and I was willing to make. Um, but then once I decided, all right, I, I need to have more operational flexibility over time and I'm not going to let the technology dictate it to me. So I'm going to have to find a solution that gives me this flexibility. Well, the solution for that was I would hire a bunch more humans because the humans can do these things flexibly, right? I can say, hey, Bob, why don't you take, you know, this over to, you know, assembly line seven. And the next time you go, why, why don't you go to assembly line four? And oh, hang on. Why don't you go do this next? And like, I can, I can change that around all the time because my the thing that is executing that job can do all of the things and they have that kind of flexibility built in because it's a person. But as we talked about, people aren't really great at predictability, right? First, I got to get them to show up for work. First, then I got to get them to, <laughs> to keep the job, right? For more than a few months. Like, so I have, I have fundamental predictability problems um, let alone, like if they keep the job, they're going to get bored and they're going to improvise and they're going to make mistakes and cause safety accidents, all of those things. Right. So I have a, that, that was my fundamental trade-off. That was it. Right. And so if I wanted to go down automation, I'd have that rock solid predictability, but if I wanted to have the flexibility, so my business could change as demands change or what have you, um, then I needed people. And like, you just had to make the choice. It was like Sophie's choice for, for 20 years. Uh, like that, th that's, that's what you had to pick. And, you know, now you don't, right? This, this is sort of the, the new dawn of automation just in the past five or 10 years is you no longer have to make that trade-off. You can have a robot that will execute flawlessly. So you have high predictability. Every time you tell it to do something, it's going to do it. And it's going to do it exactly how you want it to be done. Um, but then if you wanted to do something different, it can also do that. And that is, um, yeah, that, you know, removing sort of a, a structural trade-off like that in an industry um, is just fascinating to me uh, at, at kind of a, you know, an observer level, right? It's like, it's like you've been shackled forever and suddenly those are broken and like, okay, well, what happens next? You know, now that that, now that that trade-off is no longer true, you know, what can you do with that? And you can do lots of interesting things. And I think that's where it's going to go in the next, you know, several years. We'll be right back right after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Manufacturing Happy Hour is sponsored by Steamchain.io. Steamchain is the machine-as-a-service company that's transforming the way end-users and equipment manufacturers collaborate, increase revenues, and grow together. Now, what is machine-as-a-service? Well, if you're familiar with other as-a-service business models, it works very similarly. Rather than pay the upfront cost of a piece of capital equipment, whether that's a case erector or a canning line or anything beyond that or in between, end-users have the opportunity to pay for that equipment based on its usage and performance. This moves investment dollars from CapEx to OpEx and ties this investment to production output. The coolest thing is, machine builders win as well. Through this performance-based financing model, now OEMs can cash in on the increases in throughput and quality that they deliver, generating ongoing post-sale revenue for their business. 
Steam Chains Machine as a Service business model is one of the best solutions I've come across during my time hosting Manufacturing Happy Hour. And if you want to hear more, make sure to check out Episode 5, where we interviewed Steam Chains CEO and co-founder Mike Kromicky. You can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain and make sure to visit them at steamchain.io to learn how you can start working with them today. And now, back to today's episode. So as we get kind of to the halfway point in this interview, I am going to be asking you for an example here in a second on kind of what this looks like when it's when it's out in the field. But before that, I think there's one other important piece to really tie into this. And this is a quote from you that jumped out at me when we first spoke. You mentioned data is the exhaust off of a robot. You want to capture it and repurpose it. So let's talk data for a second. What do you mean by that quote? Uh, well, yeah, data, data is the exhaust, right? So if you think of, um, you know, automotive is obviously a big sector in manufacturing. So you think about the exhaust of what comes out of your machine. And uh, that's exactly what I think of comes off of a robot. That is the most important thing that comes off of it. And if you can capture that and repurpose it for something else, it's, it's, that's why exhaust is a great metaphor for that. So if you think about, again, the, the sort of competition for robots is the human driver. Right. That, that's kind of where we are right now. So the human driver, um, you know, they're going to drive around and they're going to do their job and all of this. And, and the data that you're going to know about your operation is going to be pretty limited. Right. I'm going to I'm going to know who you know showed up for that shift. And I'm going to have probably some data on how many deliveries were made to that assembly line or, you know, what have you. Um, but I don't have a lot of data on, you know, was there a particular amount of congestion at this one intersection during the middle of that one shift because like some stock came in, um, you know, unexpectedly and it got placed in the floor there or something like that. All that's going to get washed over. You're not going to know any of that, right? Unless you happen to be there and you were observing it firsthand. But robots, as they're driving around, they're collecting data because they have to in order to drive, Right. So it's collecting all of this data in order to do their self-driving. But that data, you know, you don't have to just throw it all away. You can then reuse that and say, oh, well, what did you know, if I look back historically, what did the robots do? What did my whole fleet do? What did my shift do? Right. And now if I can learn from that now, I've, I'm again, that is a that's a fundamental change. That's a systemic change that you could never accomplish with the sort of current status quo of manual drivers. You'll never get there, right? But if you move to this, this is now giving you a data stream around real-time operations at a level of granularity that's unprecedented. So if I can take that, and let's say that I'm at the robot level, at the physical level, I am automating you know, all of the moves that I really want to do, or the vast majority of them, or what have you, right? So I've got that. And so I'm automating those moves, and I'm taking this data exhaust, and I'm learning from it. And then in my learning, I can understand what should be changed about the flow in my operation to tune those dials just a tiny bit, right? Continuous improvement, right? This is this is automating the continuous improvement of the flow and then executing it with an automated move and then learning from that execution to relearn the continuous improvement. And now that cycle feeds on itself 
And suddenly your operation invisibly gets better every single day. And that's just, I mean, that's stunning to me. I love that. It also goes back to what you were talking about earlier. It's all about the flow, the material, the problem that we're solving from the get-go. And that's mm-hmm. what data allows people to do. You know, are, are, where, where, where are folks at in this journey right now? Are they taking advantage of that data? Are they taking advantage of AMRs? Maybe, maybe the right way is if you can give us an example that kind of illustrates this and, and maybe shows what the state of the state is, that might help paint a picture around it for, for most of our audience who's listening to this via audio today. Yeah, I, I think it's um, it's still early days. As, as, as excited as I am, and I can kind of visualize that future in, in my mind, I think that um, you know, for for the vast majority of the manufacturing sector, it's still pretty early days, right? I mentioned that the competition for robots is manual drivers, and that's like so. That's our status quo, and the status quo is still um, pervasive across across the industry, um, and. I'm seeing that there are, you know, there are pockets that are, um, you know, moving a little bit faster. And, you know, I think with, along with every other technological innovation, the faster you move, the more advantage you're going to have over your competition in the future. So I applaud those that are, you know, uh, are early movers in this space. Um, But yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting. Uh, A few years ago, Like if I was at a big trade show or something like that, and I'd have, you know, potential customers come up and, you know, be at your booth and ask questions and things like that. A few years ago, the questions were all about the technology. Tell me how your robot works. Like, what does it do? And like, how does it do this? And how does it do this? And it was, it was very abstract and tech oriented in the last couple of years, they're walking up and say, this is my business problem. Um, you know, can you solve it for me? How, how fast can we do this? What kind of return, you know, will I expect from this kind of, you know, solution toward my business problem, right? The, the mindset has shifted toward, it's not, it's not a lab project that's interesting. It's a real tool. It's ready for prime time. It's now in production. And so I should be looking at this with a very different lens, Right. I should be looking at this. This is now, yeah, this is a thing that I should be implementing, not that I should be researching. And that is, I think, just a shift just in the past couple of years. So why aren't if this is ready for prime time, why aren't more people taking advantage yet? What are are people still hesitating? You know, people are um are uh risk averse creatures. Uh I think that, you know, it it's interesting to me. Um that you have, you know, people that look at the at, at the robots, say, and how they drive and things like that, and they can look at reference accounts and they can watch videos and they can look at all the stats and they can understand that, and they will still say, "Yeah, but I'm not sure if it'll work in my facility, right?" I hate because that I've heard yeah. that so much as a sales guy before. It's like, well, yes. I get it that these are best practices, but it's just not going to work here because we're special. And, and exactly, so take take it away again. No, no, you're absolutely right. Like every every facility is this one little unique snowflake that is like, okay, well, it's totally different than everybody else's. And um, you know, there are, I will say from experience, there are very few buildings that are really truly totally different environments than than everybody else. Um, but I understand that. I, that is a um, you know, this gets to that interdisciplinary. I can't just be a um, 
a cold hearted technocrat, um, you know, technologist. I have to understand. Is technocrat a real word or did you just make that up? I'm not really sure. I think it is actually a word, but I probably did. I don't think I used it correctly. So um, if if it's not, I thought, I thought it sounded great. I think we should just keep using it in the future, but anyway, moving on. I'm going to double down on it now. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think that you know, I have to understand that the risks that are involved here of moving to any technology, it doesn't have to be just robotics, right? There's the, you know, the classic life cycle adoption curve of new technologies, right? Jeffrey Moore wrote the book, you know, Crossing the Chasm decades ago now, right? So, and it all talks about the psychology of buying behaviors at these different points and robotics is no different, right? So I'm going to have some early adopters that are cool with the new tech. And then I've got that early majority who's all about the risk aversion, right? I've got my business problem. And like, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, the no one gets fired for picking IBM and like that, that kind of a mentality that says, I have my production line here. And if I risk my production line on something that I'm not 110% certain is going to work, well, you know, I'm going to lose my job and I don't want to do that. And like, I don't want to take that risk, even though the benefit clearly outweighs that risk. So I think that there's there's still some of that, which is, again, not a new problem. It's not new for robotics. This is all just about, you know, there's a tipping point of that adoption and the sort of zeitgeist of understanding when it's real and when it's ready. And, you know, we're it, that 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 seesaw is moving right now on that tipping point. So I got a couple wrap up questions, but but give me an example of where where it is ready and where it is working. I, you know, Seagrid, you guys get to see this every day. Where where's an example of this providing a tangible benefit for someone that has adopted AMRs? Oh yeah, well I mean in manufacturing we're we're bringing um, parts to line and finished goods off the end of the line and you know in and out of warehousing and and you name it like you know a dozen different. Um, you know, sort of uh, jobs to be done, specific workflows of, of work that's being automated. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an example. One of our customers, um, you know, global manufacturer has facilities um, uh, all over the Western hemisphere, probably in, in Europe as well. Um, and, you know, have distributed um, lines and different product lines all over the place. Well, we're in a facility of theirs and, and we're delivering uh, every single part to every single one of their assembly lines 24-7. Every one of them is delivered by a secret robot uh, and has been for years. And that's, okay, that's super cool. But what's really interesting from a business perspective, they looked at that holistically. And I'll say, you know, we're, we're a part of this. We're not the sole cause of this. But they looked at this and the economic benefit of their better operations allowed them to reshore an entire assembly line from Mexico back to the States because it was better to do it there all under one roof because the process had gotten so much more efficient and effective. So, um, I mean, it was like we were cheering, right? That That's great, right? This is exactly the kinds of macro business benefits that you're going to get when you have a far more efficient operation and, you know, robotics is, um, is a big part of that. 
Well, I didn't necessarily expect to get into a, a reshoring conversation today, but it's all well, it's it's awesome because when we hear about reshoring right now, a lot of it's talking about in terms of like your local supply chain, where you can get materials locally. But you're talking about an actual like manufacturing facility where they were able to have their operations all under one roof because the process had gotten so much uh, so much better. So yep, that's right. Awesome, awesome case study for Seagrid. Um, I've got to ask, as as we start to wrap up, is there one thing you wish I would have asked you that that I haven't yet today? Something that's still on the tip of your tongue? <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I think we've uh, uh, we, we've covered some covered some good things here on. Uh, you know, the I, I think a lot about the macro factors, right? That's what I'm. I, I think of those as the as the big levers, and you know, one of the things that I I do think about that we kind of touched on, but you know, why now? Like, not the technology maturation in the last five or ten years of like you don't have the predictability, flexibility trade off. Okay, that's that's on the technology side, but on the customer side and the manufacturing side, like. Why now? Why should I change? Right? Because if I'm a manufacturer, change is you know maybe not something I jump in on with two feet on. Right? I'm I'm I tend to be risk averse, especially if you're talking about my production line, right? But um, you know I I sometimes think about the why now? Why why on the demand side? Why do manufacturers need to do this now? And you know I think that the pressures that are being applied there are um, are strong, getting stronger, aren't going away, right? Consumers, they want more choice. That's going to make my whole operation more complicated and more costly. Those choices and consumer preferences change really frequently. So I've got to be super responsive, right? They're all really price sensitive because there's global competition, right? So I can't raise prices. I can't do the things that I would normally do with all of these pressures. And so um, you know, I have a lot of empathy for where the industry is. They're they're fighting battles on multiple fronts simultaneously, um, and they've got to change some of their core processes in order to stay competitive. And um, you know, that's that to me is one of the most exciting things. Like I'm on the tech side, I get that, and robots are. I, I'll say it again, robots are cool, um, but they're being applied to a real business problem. They're, they're delivering real value. They're doing real jobs to be done at exactly the time that the market desperately needs a new answer, um, you know, compared to what they used to do. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty great. Well, I think your focus on the macro, focusing on solving the problems, bringing it back to how do we get more flow of material through the facilities mm-hmm. has been an excellent theme throughout the conversation today. Um, and as we wrap up, I just want to ask, you know, I know um, we've talked a lot about the problems that you solve, but, you know, I know you have some tangible things on the horizon that are pretty excited, exciting uh, uh, at Seagrid as well. What's uh, what's on the horizon for you guys? What's next? Yeah, well, um, more robots, more software. That's that's uh, that's what we, we we live and die by. Um, but yeah, so we've we've got a, um, a new forklift, a lifting vehicle that's, you know, fully autonomous that we're working really hard on. We just announced it uh, last month um, and it'll be coming out later this year. So we're really excited about that. I'll tell you from a roboticist perspective, uh, the third dimension is uh, uh, is super challenging, right? You have to know everything about your whole environment. So we're, uh, we've been working really hard on that and we're really excited about that. Um, and then, you know, the data discussion that we're having, um, you know, we're, 
we've got some really interesting things um, planned for our data products so we can learn from that data stream and reflect it back to operations. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about both of those. Awesome. Well, for those of you listening out there, I will have everything linked up in the show notes over at manufacturinghappyhour.com where you can dive in, learn more about Seagrid, learn more about Jeff. In the meantime, I got to thank you, Jeff. This has been a fun conversation today. Always enjoyable talking robotics, even more enjoyable talking about it over a good thick beer as well. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Chris, and cheers. Yep. Cheers. And to everyone out there listening, stay innovative, stay thirsty. Catch you again next time. Hey, thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Jeff and the team over at Seagrid for making this episode possible. If you want to learn more about Seagrid, if you want to learn more about AMRs, any of the resources we mentioned in this interview, including Sharp Edge, that uh, Belgian beer bar that Jeff was highlighting over in Pittsburgh, as always, you can get all those resources over at the show notes page. Just head over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 50 to access the show notes to today's show. As we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsor for this episode, Steam Chain. Steam Chain is the machine as a service company, and quite frankly, they are revolutionizing the way that machine builders and end users do business. They're making it more collaborative by allowing end users to pay for output and results rather than capital equipment. Make sure to check them out over at steamchain.io or listen to our interview with their CEO, Mike Kromicky, by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash steamchain. And with that, that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for sticking around. We got more interviews coming your way, and we will see you back here on Manufacturing Happy Hour real soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour. Powered by the Industrial Network.